Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 75. Thanks for joining me today. I hope that you are doing well. So today on the show, we have Amber Wood, who is the lead author of the AORN guideline for processing flexible endoscopes. Lots of good information for you to implement in your practice. We have a full show, so let's get to it. Amber is a senior perioperative practice specialist at AORN. There she serves as the lead author for several guidelines, including the recently revised AORN guideline for processing flexible endoscopes. Amber offers clinical information to members via the AORN consult line and contributes regularly to the clinical issues column in the AORN journal. She has served as a member of the Association for Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, AMI, a liaison to the CDC Healthcare Infection Control Practice Advisory Committee, HICPAC, and is a fellow of the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, APIC. Well, thank you, Amber, for joining us today on the Process This podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So as we talk about flexible endoscopes, many of our listeners follow the AMI standards for practice in sterile processing. Can you kind of explain the difference and the similarities between the AMI standards and the AORN guidelines? Sure. So the AORN guidelines uh, use an evidence-based process as compared to AMI who uses a consensus process where the consensus of the group that has to come to an agreement. So what you're going to find in the ARN guideline, how this looks different, is that when we make a recommendation, we have evidence ratings. And you'll see that's from systematically reviewed and appraised studies. So that means that we have a librarian who searches for all the articles on a topic, and we include them even if they have conflicting results or they don't support our point. Um, So we evaluate all of those high quality, low quality, we give it a score. And then as we're considering the studies and we're appraising the studies, we evaluate the benefits and the harms of a recommendation and how it might affect the patient or, you know, how it might affect workplace safety issues or resources. So that's something new that we started doing in 2020 is considering resource use. When you look at the recommendations and the guideline and the rationale for each recommendation, you'll notice just from reading it that those things um, show a difference between our process at AORN and the AMI process. And so AORN has been involved with the development of AMI guidelines. We've been on those committees. We were involved with the ANSI AMI ST91 guideline development. So you're going to find a lot of harmony between the recommendations, and that's really going to help you guys with implementation into practice. 
And so for flexible endoscopes, when you're comparing AORN and the Amy ST91, you're going to see we do have a stronger position on boroscope inspection. And uh, there were a lot of studies on that that we've cited and discussed and talked about benefits and harms and resources. Um, you're also going to see additional recommendations with handover from the OR team to the decontamination personnel. And then you're going to see more information about pre-purchase evaluation, including single-use and reusable endoscopes. And that's because we had a lot of studies that compared, especially with ureteroscopes, the cost and the benefits of using those types of scopes. So when we do that systematic approach, things show up in the literature that we end up including. Very similar. Amy cites evidence, of course, and they have cited evidence. They just don't have a like a research librarian who would do a review of all of the evidence on a topic. So as I understand it, there is a lengthy process for revising a guideline. You just can't throw one together in a week or so, right? Right. Can you walk our listeners through the process or what it takes to update a guideline? Yeah, so it, it is quite a process and I wish it did take a week. A lot of times we tease it's like birthing a child because it, it takes about nine months to a year. So like I said, we, we kind of start with what, what guideline are we going to revise? We kind of get in mind what we kind of want the scope of that topic to be, what we want to include, what we want to exclude, uh, what kind of questions, research questions do we have as we're going through the topic. And we gather all those terms, uh, like for search terms, for the librarian. And so we have a medical librarian. She's actually also a perioperative nurse, which makes all of our job a lot easier. She's like our unicorn, as we say. But she, she reviews all the major databases for research articles using those search terms following a systematic process. There is a rigorous process for that. And so she finds all the articles on the topic. And then the lead author goes through each one of those articles. We review it. What was its quality? What was, was it published in peer-reviewed literature? We score it. We compile them. Um, we have a second appraiser who is external, usually a, a PhD nurse, who would also score that article and the quality. And we compare scores. So it takes several months just to do that process and to go through and review all the studies. So make sure we have the best evidence. And a lot of times when we're reading a study, we'll find in the references another great study cited and maybe didn't come up in the literature search. So then we'll, we call it a snowball. We'll start searching those references. So we make sure uh, that we've got the best evidence that we can find and not just cited evidence, but just the best evidence we can find. And so we go through all that. And we start synthesizing it by topic. So maybe I've got a question like boroscope inspection and I've pulled all the articles I found on boroscope inspection. And then I start synthesizing. What do all those articles say? Are they all saying the same thing? Are they saying different things? What were their results? How can we make a recommendation out of it? And that's where we come to make recommendations. And once we make a recommendation, we have draft the document. We have a guidelines advisory board, including a representative from HSPA, Sue Klasik. And we have representatives on that board of our members and our liaison organizations. And they review the document as well and give us feedback. We then post that draft for a public comment period of 30 days. It's on our homepage at AORM.org. Anyone is open to comments. Uh, you don't have to be a member. A lot of people think that, but you can create a free account and review the document, put your comments in. We do a very rigorous process to review all those comments and make sure we're addressing everyone's concerns or comments or support. <laughs> and uh, adjust the recommendations as we need it. Then we send that to our guidelines advisory board. 
they vote on it. And once it's approved, then we move on with publication. So it's, it's quite the process. And we have, we have several checks and balances in place to make sure that we're not writing guidelines in a silo and that we're collaborating um, and making sure it's, um, it's evidence-based, but it's also feasible for implementation. Great. So let me get this correct. Anybody can comment on the guideline during that comment period, correct? Yeah. Your mom could comment on it if she wanted to. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll just leave my mother out of this. (laughs) Well, that's great. So there have been lots of changes with flexible endoscopes over the past couple of years. In fact, you know, if you look at the ECRI top 10 hazardous list, you know, something to do with endoscopes is always on there. So, you know, what challenges did you face while you were working on this guideline? Yeah, that's a good point. There are so many outbreaks. There's more outbreaks related to endoscopes than there are for any other reusable device. So we had a lot of case studies to pull from, unfortunately, a lot of outbreak reports. And so we really had a challenge to go through. The timeline was difficult to look at studies We look back uh, five years or back to the last time a guideline was updated and it was really difficult to compare studies that were older because we know so much has changed with endoscopes. We're we're implementing new interventions all the time um, in how we make sure that we are complying with new manufacturer's instructions. Sometimes those instructions change and so it can be really difficult to compare those studies and sometimes we don't know all the other interventions that were done. So we had the most studies I think I've ever reviewed for a topic was with this guideline update. And uh, it was just extremely difficult. It was a large amount of studies. They were very technical, a lot of laboratory studies, very scientific and really difficult to think about how we would translate that into clinical practice and how that matters for outcomes. It was a really a challenge uh, to kind of synthesize that. And then from the guidelines side, because this is such a hot topic, there's a ton of guidelines. There were 60 other guidelines, um, both nationally and internationally on this topic. Oh. And so we, uh, we fo- this is a U.S. focused guideline. So we focus on the U.S. guidelines, especially the, you know, the ANSI AMI ST91 was a key player. Multi-society guideline from the GI societies and SGNA when it comes to the GI endoscopes. And then we've got the, for the bronchoscopes, we've got the pulmonologist societies. They have guidelines for the urology endoscopes. The urologists and the urology nurses have guidelines to follow. And of course, our sterile processing associations. HSPA has an awesome endoscope manual that has a lot of great information. Infection control and epidemiology colleague guidelines. (laughs) There's SHEA has guidelines. CDC has guidelines. So you see, we just have a plethora of guidelines just even in the United States to consider. But then you look internationally, they have the same thing going on in every country. You've got the European group consolidates into European guidelines. We have World Health Organization guidelines, World Gastroenterology Organization. So there are just a ton of guidelines. And if you are an international person listening to this, we did review those. They are cited at a high level, like for example, you should do a leak test. Everyone agrees for the most part that we should do a leak test, right? So those uh, guidelines are cited there that support that statement, Um, but maybe not down in the nitty gritty details about how it's done. Um, We we didn't get into all the international guidelines at that granular level, but they are included, the ones we could find through our evidence review process. 
it was just a challenge to synthesize all the all the guidance, all the research. It, it was a lot. It sounds like it. So when I go to look in the guideline, the flexible endoscope guideline, what things am I going to find? Or what things are in the scope of the document? Are, are there things that are not included that I you know, should look somewhere else for? Probably the biggest thing you're going to notice is that we don't talk in detail about manual high-level disinfection processes for flexible endoscopes. We mention it, uh, but we have more of that content in our guideline for manual high-level disinfection because we we really emphasize the automated processes, but we and we mention how to do the manual, but uh, we don't get into all the chemical safety into this guideline because we have that in our other guideline, and we're just trying not to duplicate content across the guidelines. So that that's probably the biggest thing that you'll notice. Also, we don't include ultrasound probes and TEE probes. That's not a part of this guideline. This really focuses on our GI endoscopes and our bronchoscopes and our urology flexible endoscopes, mostly um, endoscopes with lumens is most of what the research was on. You know, we know flexible endoscopes are really complex medical devices that create challenges, just difficulty processing these scopes. How are these items addressed in the guideline? Yeah, um, we really address this right up front. It's in the purpose statement. It's why we have a guideline. This is why we haven't fixed this problem. Is because these scopes are complex, our processes are complex, it's really difficult to achieve effective cleaning and processing. So our guideline focuses on addressing those systems and human factors. We talk about how that plays a role into errors and endoscope processing. We talk about how we have more outbreaks with infection. So we talk about that narrow margin of safety and how we can have that improved. And we talk about sterilization. That gives a greater margin of safety in the process. And also we talk about using single use and disposable endoscopes um, and disposable components of like the duodenoscopes. Talk about the challenges with cleaning, the regulations we've gotten from the FDA um, and how that uh, has affected our endoscope processing. We talk about competency. That's a huge part of, of human factors and systems issues. We need leaders. Um, we have guidance for leaders to get that information to the persons who are processing the scope, getting the instructions to them, getting the education that they need, supporting their working conditions. Addressing the ergonomic concerns is really one of the biggest things that, that we added because if we're not in a comfortable work environment, we may not, that might be a human factor added to that more difficult, complex process that we need to address. So there's recommendations in there about that. Yeah, I think that'll be very beneficial to our listeners. When you're in that environment, not only are you concentrating on cleaning, but if it's, if it's a hostile environment, meaning it's conditions aren't right, you know, then those human factors do play a part of it. So I think that's great, a great addition to the guideline. Now, once an endoscope procedure is complete, so at the point of use, you know, that point of use treatment begins, and eventually that endoscope is going to end up in the decontamination area for cleaning. How do the guidelines address the transition of care and communication from the OR, that point of use, to the sterile processing decontamination area? This is so important and a place where we can really collaborate to have the best outcomes uh, for processing flexible endoscopes. So one thing that's really new we talked about is that the OR team, they know what happened to that scope while it was being used. 
So we have to have communication between the person transporting the scope down and the person in Deacon's hand to let them know what happened to the scope. Um, did you, you know, was there any damage occurred or any problems with the scope? Of course, we have to communicate that. Were there any items used during the procedure that could affect the scope? And we had a lot of studies about semethicone in GI procedures and how that can, do we use that during the procedure? That needs to be communicated because we know in decontam we have to have, we might need additional cleaning. We might need a different product. So we want to make sure that's communicated. Use of lubricants. Uh, we had a great study that from the Offset and Associates that they found uh, lubricants in tissue adhesives and semethicone use, and they found these things in endoscopes. And so we want to make sure that the OR team, when they're using these things, that they're communicating that. And so really we have that recommendation about the handover process, making sure that is communicated and emphasizing the importance of the timeline. That has to be part of the handover too. Uh, we want to make sure that point of use treatment begins immediately after completion of the scope use. And so we have some challenges there, especially when scopes are kind of kept around just in case. Uh, with the bronchoscope, sometimes that happens. We want to make sure that we're keeping the scopes moist. We're doing that point of use treatment as soon as uh, the scope's done being used, and we're immediately transporting that, and we're making sure we have handover communication so that we can make sure that when the scope arrives in decontam, you know the time frame that the scope's been um, sitting and waiting for processing. And so you can make sure you're following the manufacturer's instructions. And we include recommendations about that, either following the manufacturer's instructions, if they have a time frame such as 60 minutes, or the facility has their own time frame to make sure if the specific scope doesn't have a recommendation, that you're making sure if delayed processing and extended soaking is needing, that that's happening. So really a lot of emphasis on that communication. So that way, you, when you get the scope to process, you know what happened and you can do the the right best thing in accordance with the IFU to process that scope. Great. Yeah. And I like what you said about the communication, the collaboration it's going to take for those processes to happen. Cleaning, again, one of our top concerns when dealing with endoscopes. As we all know, improper cleaning can lead to ineffective disinfection or sterilization. Knowing that cleaning is important, what recommendations do the guidelines provide to assist with cleaning. There are so many recommendations about cleaning. A lot of it you're already doing. It's it's in the IFUs, it's you know using the right type of brushes, using the right products. Those are the recommendations that are already there and we really want to emphasize the cleaning as well and we share the studies that show about the inefficient cleaning. Uh, because if we're going to talk about things to lower the margin of safety by like doing sterilization, well, that's not going to do us any good if we have insufficient cleaning. So we really emphasize that those things go together. And what you're going to see is recommendations to verify cleaning. We see this also in Amy ST91. We want to see inspection. We want to see visual inspection. We have recommendations for boroscope inspection. We also have recommendations for cleaning verification testing doing either the ATP or the protein or the carbohydrate or the hemoglobin testing to have an objective measurement of cleanliness. And we want to make sure that we do cleaning verification testing so we can make sure that scope's ready to move on to the next step in the process. Well, it sounds like great information and a place that uh, we can use as a resource when we're trying to get uh, different supplies like ATP testing and boroscopes for our departments so that we can uh, verify that what we're doing is the right thing, that we're cleaning them appropriately. 
Yeah, and boroscopes are, are going to be a challenge to implement. You know, we've we recommended it in the past to consider it, and now it's a stronger recommendation. So people are going to have to develop programs. Uh, it, it really needs to be a lot of thought put into the process and how it's going to be done. And the best thing I can recommend is starting small. You know, start with a pilot project, start with maybe one service line or, or one group or maybe one just particular high risk item that you want to monitor. Maybe it's your duodenoscopes and you just want to start there or, you know, just, just pick, pick somewhere to start, to start developing your program. Cause we know we got to work out the kinks. We know we got to get staff competent and it's going to just take some time to work through that. And there's some challenges there, but the guideline really provides a lot of information to help you develop a program because we know cleaning verification is it's not just testing and it's not just looking in the scope with a boroscope. It's a multimodal process that we want to do several interventions to make sure we've achieved cleanliness. It's You can't just do the testing by itself. You can't just do the boroscopes by themselves. For example, you may see something you don't know if it's bio burden or something you maybe have no idea what the item is. Maybe you need to do cleaning verification testing to help you test that item. There may be other things um, that you need to do. So it's definitely going to take some work to put together a program and just ease into it. Drying of endoscopes. So even drying of endoscopes has changed over the past few years. Are, are there any new recommendations we should be aware of in the guideline? Drying was the most exciting to me. I mean, I love watching paint dry, but watching an endoscope dry is even better. Um, <laughs> I think we all, we all know we've seen wet scopes. And for so long, it's it's not that we haven't known about it. We've just overlooked it. We, we didn't think it was as important as it is. But what the studies are now showing us is that any moisture remaining on the either exterior or interior of that scope can facilitate microbial growth and that biofilm formation while it's in storage. And so there's much greater emphasis both in AMAST 91 and in AORN guidelines about drying. Uh, I think the biggest thing that's new is that we want all accessible channels of endoscopes to be dried in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions using pressure regulated instrument air or HEPA filtered air for a minimum of 10 minutes or until no visible moisture remains. That's the biggest thing. Um, and we want this done because a lot of people think they have an AER. It does an air purge cycle. Maybe it has an extended drying. They think that's sufficient and it's not. When you pull that scope out of the AER uh, automated reprocessor, you still have to dry it externally. You still are going to have to go through this process to purge the channels. Like I said, 10 minutes or until there's no visible moisture. There's other ways to get around this if you don't have 10 minutes. There are devices that are compatible with endoscopes that can dry it, so it doesn't have to be such a manual process. Um, and there are drying cabinets that can, you can use some of this time to dry, can be done in a drying cabinet. So there's other options than a person standing there doing it manually, but of course that is acceptable in accordance with the IFU. We just wanna make sure that that air that's going in is of quality that we need, so it's filtered air instrument air quality or HEPA filtered and that it's pressure regulated because we don't want to damage the endoscopes during this process. But it is so important to make sure it's dry so that biofilm doesn't start developing. So gone are the days of the drip dry. Is that what you're telling me? It's gone. It's gone. All right, storage. So storage of endoscopes always seems to be some sort of topic, hot topic somewhere. 
I get this question a lot. Uh, I'm sure you do. How long should we store endoscopes after high-level disinfection? I really want to tell you the answer. <laughs> but we want a specific answer. There is not one. I'm uh, sorry. Oh, nobody ever likes this. Everybody wants the time, uh, but the studies were really conflicting. Uh, we had storage times of seven days because that was the previous recommendation. We had a lot of people researching that. Um, so we, we saw that that was effective, but also we had some studies showing up to 21 days, up to 56 days. And really what it boils down to is what are the storage conditions? Was there optimal processing? Was there drying done before it was placed into storage? You know, did we use a high-level disinfectant or a liquid chemical sterilant? So the liquid chemical sterilants had a greater log reduction, so those endoscopes could stay in storage longer without contamination than high-level disinfected endoscopes. So it really just depends on how it was processed, how it was stored. Uh, so unfortunately, we still recommend doing a risk assessment, but I think it is a fortunate thing. So you can evaluate your process. You may be able to extend that storage time from seven days if you have evaluated your storage. If you looked at what kind of scopes that you're using, that's another part of it too. Are we in a restricted area? How are we handling those scopes? And so it is possible and we provide guidance for teams for determining what that time frame should be, depending on your specific facility and your setup you have. All right, last question. If one of the listeners wanted to get a copy of this newest guideline, where and how would they be able to do that? Yeah, so it's a little bit hot off the press here. It just came out electronically. So right now it's currently only available in the eGuidelines Plus. This is an electronic subscription to the AORN guidelines. So you can go to aornguidelines.org and there's information in there about the guidelines and how to access the eGuidelines Plus. That right now is a facility subscription. So you might want to talk to your OR team, your infection prevention, see if they already have a subscription. But other than that, you're going to have to wait till the book comes out for 2023 in January. It will be in the print book of the Guidelines for Perioperative Practice. All right. So wait for the print book or make some friends. So that are the options. All right. Well, thank you, Amber. We appreciate your insight and we appreciate this guideline. Uh, there's lots of information. So thank you. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for the work that you do to get this information out. And for everybody who's processing these scopes, thank you so much for all you do. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show today. Go check out the new guideline and make sure you are practicing with the most up-to-date recommendations. As Amber pointed out, if you want to participate in the public comments for any of the AORN guidelines, that process is open to the public. And even my mother can submit comments. So submit comments, be a part of the solution and not the problem, just like my mother. HSPA episode number 75 is in the books. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure that you use the code PUBLICCOMMENTS. Again, the code for this episode is PUBLICCOMMENTS. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode, it's on demand, so when you're ready for us, 
we'll be there for you. And as always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.